0: Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. That's a terrible call. That is a terrible call.
1: It's a Wednesday, we're still locked down, everything to do with the Celtics hasn't changed since you last heard of us on Monday, but it's been great that I've been able to be joined by Mr. A. Sherrod Blakely at Boston NBC. It's going to be a good episode, guys, make sure that you're leaving a rating and subscribe if it's the first time listening. How are you doing today, Mr. Sherrod? I'm doing pretty good, how about yourself? I'm doing well, thank you, I'm doing well, staying indoors as much as possible.
0: Absolutely, trying to stay clean and quarantine, that's what we're trying to do here.
1: Oh, I like that. That's a good mutter. Let's just kick this off. As um, as I spoke to you before we went on air, the first thing I really want to dive into with you is your career, how you went from, uh, I'm assuming, a college graduate, making your way through the media world into one of the lead roles in NBC Boston.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I went to Syracuse University and graduated from there. Uh, And I started off working, you know, covering high schools in Syracuse, and I did that for a couple of years. And then an opportunity to cover uh, major college basketball came about, and that really was my dream job. I I wanted to be in a market where I could cover major college football and basketball, and the good thing about dreams is that, you know, you you never know when they can come true. Uh, That, for me, was the end goal, but I found myself getting an opportunity to do that at the age of 23, uh, which is way sooner than I thought I I would. Uh, But I was in North Carolina covering the ACC Uh, covered North Carolina State and also wound up covering Duke uh, for a while. And so that was a lot of fun. And just covering those programs down there, that kind of opened the door uh, for me to be exposed to some other potential opportunities. And that led to me spending about 10 years in Detroit covering the Pistons back when they were good. Uh, People, when they think about the Pistons, they think about the bad boys of the late 80s, early 90s. And they think about the Pistons we've seen in the last five, six, seven, eight years who weren't very good. But there was that period in between where they were the best team in the Eastern Conference, and that was when I was there. Uh, I had a chance to go to the, you know, the NBA Finals or Eastern Conference Finals almost every year I was there, and, and that was a lot of fun. Uh, I had a lot of really good times, good stories, and good people I came across there. And then an opportunity to come to Boston came about, and Boston, uh, I thought, was a natural transition for me because the job that I was uh, talking to them about was a multi-platform position, whereas my previous jobs were almost exclusively writing jobs. So an opportunity to really kind of delve into the digital landscape a little bit, where I would, in addition to doing writing, I would still be able to do you know some on-camera stuff, some TV stuff, more digital writing, uh, that came about. And that's pretty much where I've been the last 10 plus years here in Boston. And you know, it's, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, very different than what I did previously, but at the same time, it's been a, a good, fun challenge, a good run.
1: When you first came into doing this into the media world, was your aim always to end up in a position where you could do multi-platform reporting, so there'd be some audio vision involved, or is that just how it naturally progressed through the years?
0: Well, it kind of progressed through the years that way. You know, and really, when again, when I was in Detroit, you know, I was I was just exclusively a writer until uh, there were certain situations where NBA TV wanted me to do some TV stuff for them, and I did that and actually uh, NBC Sports Boston now uh, used to be Comcast, and they wanted me to do some stuff when the Celtics and the Pistons played in the playoffs, and I was in Detroit, and that was kind of how I, I got on their radar a little bit, uh, just doing some work for them during the playoffs, and at that point, it became pretty clear to me that, you know, I'm at some point, I'm going to have to transition into a more digital, media-friendly role, and You know, when the opportunity to come to Boston came about, I I jumped at the opportunity because I knew I was joining what I believe at that time was just the direction of sports journalism. And that is a multi-platform, multi-faceted medium where you can't just be good at one or two things. You have to show a level of proficiency at a lot of different elements, whether it's writing, being on camera, blogging, posting, all those type of things.
1: And if you was going to college now, so if you was able to give your past self, but in the present, let's kind of make it really confusing, some advice, what would be the best advice you could give yourself?
0: I would tell myself to not stick my nose up at all those broadcast journalism majors. Uh, I went to Syracuse University, which is known for its broadcast journalism alums, and and, and to a lesser extent, its print uh, writers as well. But I really... my, if I would talk to myself back then, I would say, take some of those broadcast classes, get a firmer foundation, uh, and that will ha- enable you to make a better transition, uh, if it ever came to that, where you would be doing more than just writing. That's probably the one thing that uh, when I look back on my time in college that I would do differently, that would be it, just to take more broadcast journalism classes that have a, a little bit more wider breadth of experience and, and understanding of how the different mediums collectively work together and just being able to be a little bit more, uh, it would have made a much smoother transition from one to the other if I kind of had that, that foundation.
1: Um, so with the way the media's gone and everything's become digitized and you've got on-demand content now, you're actually running the NBC podcast as well, right? I wouldn't say running
0: it, I'm a, I'm a contributor to it. Uh, we, we have a lot of different folks who are chipping in with our podcast coverage, but certainly, you know I I've, I've found myself doing my part whether it's you know doing an interview that we utilize in our Celtics talk uh, podcast or whether it's you know some more broader you know uh, projects I've worked on you know like uh, you know doing stuff with Jason Tatum and his dad in St. Louis or spending some time with uh, Kimball walker and, and and his you know folks uh, back in the Bronx uh, so there's definitely uh, you have to be a bit more versatile not only in terms of your content, but also the platforms that you utilize. Uh, in addition to, you know, the, the typical traditional social media, you know, elements like Twitter and Instagram and those types, you also have to, you know, make sure that you are active in the podcast game, make sure that you're making sure there's, there's pretty good content on your website. Now, obviously with what we're all dealing with now, uh, it's a little tougher to have that, that unique and fresh content just because, Many of the elements that we're accustomed to pulling from the players, coaches, management, those type of things, everyone is kind of, you know, that's been put on pause, if you will. But that doesn't mean that you just simply sit back and twiddle your thumbs. Uh, One of the things that I have been kind of pushing with some of the people that I work with, not only at NBC, but just some of the people I mentor, uh, some of the people that I deal with outside of my day job, is how we have to utilize this time. Uh, that were you know kind of sequestered if you will to have be innovation innovators in isolation uh innovation isolation really is going to determine how we can pivot out of you know this this period of time when we're to ourselves and we're trying to develop and, and implement different types of content because not everything we're doing now is going to stick but there will be some things that will i think be around now and when we look back on those things in five ten years from now We'll, we'll look back on them favorably because those were things that we were able to kind of innovate or develop while we were in this, this period in which we're all separated, yet still trying to find a way to work together.
1: And have you been speaking to many of the players during this time while everybody's struggling to get outdoors? Not as many as I want to. Uh,
0: that, that's that been one of the big, you know, tough adjustments is just, you know, figuring out how to uh, communicate with with the players. And, and again, well, it's, it's very much like the offseason. Uh, as far as communicating with players, and, and the offseason season is very hit or miss. Um, I may get Marcus Smart, you know, on Monday, and I may not get him again until three, four, five Mondays later. Uh, you know, I may get a text back from Jason Tatum, and then I may text him two minutes later, and won't hear back from him for weeks on end. So it's it's really it's a little bit trickier to connect with players than it than it was than it, or than it would be during the season, but you still have to put forth the effort, and it gives you an opportunity now I think that just to be a little bit more creative with how you um, position and, and put forth the content that you are trying to gather because at the end of the day we're all trying to do the same thing and that's generate content that resonates with the audience.
1: And that's been one of the hardest things the creative procedure going into that and trying to make sure that the content you put out is is worthy of people consuming How's your mentality been when it comes to innovating that type of content? What have you been doing differently that you've really enjoyed and what have you tried differently that you thought? Maybe I won't do that again.
0: Yeah, I think for me, the the biggest adjustment is just really doing a better job of just utilizing the years that I've been in the business and the people that I've come across and just really uh, tapping into that source base a little bit that goes beyond just the players. Uh, case in point, uh, I did a, a podcast recently with Casey Johnson, who's the beat writer uh, at NBC Sports in Chicago, and I've known Casey for over twenty years. And he covers the bull and he covered the second 3 three-peat of Chicago Bulls. So I had him on a podcast where we talked about that. Uh, we, we talked about just some of his impressions of the last dance, and just to tie it in with the Celtics, you know, we got into a conversation about leadership, which the Chicago Bulls—they've got a number of different faces in their front office. And we talked about leadership uh, as far as how the Celtics and their leadership is perceived. And that was a great discussion. And it'll, it'll be on our Celtics Star podcast, probably dropping sometime later today or tomorrow. But he gave great insight into how the Chicago Bulls, for example, uh, perceive the Boston Celtics in their front office. And we talked about the Jimmy Butler possible trade that the Celtics and Chicago was heav- were heavily involved in. And he provided some real behind-the-scenes insight that uh, I'm not sure there's been much, if any, talk about, about why that deal didn't go down. Uh, and so, again, that's something that if I were in season and we were having our usual games and we're in the playoffs right now, I probably wouldn't have reached out to him and, and had that conversation. But that's an example of content that I think has, it does two, two things. One, it, it does attach itself to something that's relatively current. And the last dance documentary that ESPN has been putting forth, they just finished episode seven and eight, that's something that's relative and current to the times uh, and trying to find a connection with the team I cover the Boston Celtics was able to do that as well with Casey when he talked about leadership and how the Celtics leadership is perceived uh, and so that's really the, the challenge that I think all content creators out there have is just finding something that is somewhat relevant can resonate and it ties into what you are connected with uh, what your sweet spot your bread and butter the the, the type of content that people are accustomed to getting from you can you do something that meets those those three particular parameters and it's easier said than done um but i i think that has to be at least for me that has to be the mindset going forward
1: i'm hoping that everybody listens to that discussion you have in regards to the balls because that would be some great background insight into a trade that never happened that was heavily suggested and you mentioned the last dance how are you finding that are you enjoying watching through
0: you know, it's been good. I mean, it's it's been interesting. I, I'm I'm a big fan of anytime you can get insight into uh, behind the scenes uh, coverage because a lot of the stories that they're talking about uh, with the Last Dance, I've heard a lot of those stories before. But it's it's really great to see uh, some of the little details that I may that you didn't know. Um, I, I like, for example, you know, when when Scottie Pippen years ago uh, didn't want to go back into a playoff game at the very end because even though he was their best player, the play that the, was being drawn out was not for him. Uh, it was great to hear the players talk about what that meant to the team. Steve Kerr flat out said he quit on us. Uh, you never hear players uh, talk about their teammates in that regard, even when this is blatantly obvious. Uh, they, they got into how Bill Cartwright gave this impassioned speech that left him crying at the end and how that was just really impacted that locker room. Those are the kind of things that you're, you're probably not going to get those stories, that type of detail while in season, while in the middle of a playoff series. But with a chance to reflect upon those times, which we're doing a lot of these days, it's great to really get a little more uh, of a well-rounded image of what was going on back then. And, and so that we can you know, draw a more, I think, realistic conclusion based on having a little bit more evidence uh, of what was, was happening and transpiring in, in that moment.
1: I like how you, at the start of this discussion, you mentioned getting the insider content and looking, looking at the information for a lens that isn't generally available to you, which mm-hmm. really segues us onto the next section of the podcast. You've been around guys like Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown this year. You've been inside, the, I'm assuming, inside the locker rooms. As you said, you can text these guys. How, have they, how has their mindset changed from last season to this year? Considering the jumps that both of those guys made in terms of production on the floor,
0: well the biggest thing in in talking with those guys, and frankly, I, I put a lot of stock in talking with those around them because often you know with players, you know, their perspective of how they've improved is somewhat different than the perspective of those who are around them, who are seeing that improvement from a an outsider's perspective. And both of those guys have talked about you know when they, when about their own growth, Uh, Just being, them just simply being, you know, more physically, mentally, emotionally more mature than they were a year ago. Um, When you talk to people around them, uh, you talk to other execs throughout the league who have tried to pry them from Boston via trade. Uh, The one thing that they say the biggest difference between those two guys in particular this year is opportunity. Uh, We remember just a couple years ago, they were basically, you know, 24 minutes, second half away from getting to the NBA Finals. And those guys have gotten, you know, just significantly better since then. Uh, but the biggest difference this year, those who I've talked to say, is opportunity. They had an opportunity to have a more, uh, a more centerpiece type role, a bigger part of the puzzle, if you will, uh, with the Celtics. And to their credit, they made the most of it. You know, I, I, Tatum's his ascension really hasn't been that big a surprise. That's a guy that showed signs from day one that he could be an all-star in this league and someone that. You know, no one will be surprised in 10, 12 years if he's still a Boston Celtic and we're talking about him along with the Paul Pierce, the Haliceks, the Bill Russells of the world in terms of what he meant to that Celtics franchise and how he stands along them in terms of stats and also in terms of success. Now, Jalen is the one that I think a lot of people were a little bit surprised to see him make the kind of growth, uh, exponential growth curve that we've seen. But I had a chance to spend some time with some of Jalen's folks in Georgia, uh, his AAU coach and his high school coach. Uh, And they made it very clear that what we're seeing from Jalen this past season, they saw that on a smaller scale. But the difference, again, is opportunity, you know, and and as much as people want to knock Kyrie, you know, for leaving and all that, his presence really, to some extent, I wouldn't say stunted their growth, but it slowed it down. Uh, it's, it's one thing when you're looking at young guys who are making great leaps and have a great season, but then when Kyrie came back into the fold, all those opportunities to be great were shortened, And so they had to learn how to be impactful in a more concise manner. And that's tough for anyone, whether you are a, a four-year veteran or a guy who's going into their 14th season. Uh, and it took those guys a little bit of time to adjust when they had Kyrie in the mix, take him out of the mix, and all of a sudden – Tatum looks like the guy we saw a couple years ago, only better. Jalen Brown has shown that he can be more than just a corner three-ball shooter or a guy that can score in transition. Showed the ability to have a nice mid-range game, and has shown some versatility from a defensive standpoint as well. So I think both of those guys have shown that the ceiling is dramatically high for them in terms of continued growth, while at the same time, both have shown they're pretty darn good players among their peers right now.
1: It's really interesting that you point out Jalen Brown as being the more surprising. I agree completely. What interests me the most is, for Jalen, it's the mechanical changes in his game, for me, that have been more prominent than any physical attribute. He was already super athletic. It's He's reworked his shot a little bit, so his release points higher. His dribbling in the half court and the open court have both become much tighter. Do you see yeah. these two having another jump like that again next year? Or do you think it's going to be more incremental from this point forward?
0: Well, I think with Jalen, I think we're going to see a more significant jump from where he's at now to where he'll be in a year than I think we'll see from Tatum. Because Tatum, you know, the way he was playing you know, before the season was put on pause, I mean, if you were to take the last four or five weeks of the season uh, and then you start going through who are the top five, top 10 players in the NBA. Tatum would be in that list. And I, I think when we resume play, whether it's later this year or whether it's next season, I think Tatum is going to steadily push himself into that top 10, top 15 players in the NBA classification. And I think Jalen isn't going to be too far behind from that. But I do think Jalen, I think, is going to make the more uh, pronounced leap going forward because with him, uh, I just see that I just see more potential to get better. I think Tatum is going to get better, but I don't think the growth is going to be as dramatic as we saw this last four or five weeks. I would not be surprised if we see Jalen Brown go through a similar run where he's giving you 25 or so points for seven, eight, nine games in a row. And even when he tails off, it's not an absolute rock bottom tail off. He goes from maybe 20, 25 to maybe having a stretch where he averages – you know, 17 points over five, six games, nothing dramatically falling off the cliff type fall, but definitely uh, a little bit of a step back. But at the end of the day, when you look at the totality of where he'll be, I think a year from now versus where he's at now, I think he will be a dramatically better player and someone that when you're talking about all-stars, I do believe he will be an all-star next year. I I think he's got that type of growth left in him. Uh, I think he was frankly, you know, right on the cusp of being one this year. Uh, So uh, the the Celtics, they have a very, very bright future when you talk about having those two guys as two of your pillars going forward.
1: I couldn't agree more. The contract extension that Jalen Brown received when it was first released, it was quite a big talking point considering the season he was coming off of. He's made that look an absolute steal right now, and I've got every faith that that's going to continue becoming more and more of a valuable contract as the next few years come by. What we're talking, yeah, no, about, I, go ahead. No, the
0: finish. Finish the question. Sorry, I
1: was uh, while we're talking on contracts, I was moving on to Hayward to say with Hayward's contract being in the player option now, assuming that we don't resume play for the Celtics. The, the decision starts moving towards, is Haywood go, going to opt in? Is he going to opt out and restructure? Or is he just going to opt out and look for passages new? Following the year he's had, I'm super high on on Haywood. I'd really like him to, if possible, then to restructure that deal or at least opt in for the next year.
0: I think if you're the Boston Celtics and you had your druthers about what to do with, with Gordon, I think in a perfect world, you would restructure a deal and, and get him to come in at a lower cap number. Um, But if I'm Gordon Hayward, uh, to be very frank and honest with you, I would opt into that final year and just become an unrestricted free agent next summer. Uh, It would be, for him, it would be good to have a full season of of your your play as your body of work that people will be judging you on. He had a lot of really good moments this year. I thought before he had the first uh, injury, I thought Hayward was definitely back to looking like that all-star we remember when he was in Salt Lake City. And I, I thought even, you know, even as the season progressed, he had some ups and downs for sure. But I thought there were far more ups to his game than downs. And I, I do believe that that's somebody, if you're the boss of Celtics, you'd love to keep him around, you know, going beyond, you know, next season. Uh, and, and and frankly, I think Gordon wants to be here. Uh, I don't think it's a coincidence that, you know, the, home that, the off-season home that he had out in San Diego, he sold that. Uh, I, the fact that he is really – made i think clear efforts to establish roots here in in boston i don't think that should be taken for granted uh but but from gordon's standpoint i i I would play out this last year uh because you're not going to get that that kind of money on a free agent market particularly when teams are just you know the the COVID 19 pandemic has hit every team significantly in the pocket and you're just you're just not going to get that kind of money on a per year basis anywhere else and frankly. I'm not sure how, what you would we'll be looking at, even with a multi year deal, how much of a drop off you would have to take with that. For him, I think from a basketball standpoint, from a financial standpoint, it makes a lot of sense to play out that last year in Boston, get a full 82 game schedule under your belt, and then see what your value is, not only to Boston, but also to the other 29 teams throughout the NBA. That, to me, is, is a smart play if you're Gordon Hayward.
1: For sure. He's not getting any younger, so he does need to work out how he's going to optimise these latter few years of his career financially in terms of contract deals. Yeah. The way he's utilised in Boston as well really accentuates his overall skill set. For me, it's Tatum and Brand have both taken a jump and they've both shown growth as ball handlers, but neither one of them have shown an ability to operate in the full court with the ball in their hands and be a reliable initiator. Tatum showing glimpses of that in the half court, but not in the full court. So when a point guard's sitting, especially with how the roster has been constructed this year, knowing that you can use Hayward as your point forward and initiate, initiate plays from the full court or the half court and then incorporate Tatum when those two are sharing the floor has been very, very valuable. I don't see them wanting to lose that moving into next year.
0: No. I mean, the, the thing that I, that I really like about Gordon is just the, the versatility that he brings to the table. You know, when he was in Utah that last year, I, I made a point of watching every single game he had on you know, on a lead pass all season long because I knew that was the one guy that the Celtics were absolutely 100% chips all in on trying to get in the offseason. And the thing that I, I started to notice more and more about Gordon is just the balance about his game. That I think was often overshadowed when he was in Utah because they needed him to be more of a scorer. They needed him to be more of a get your shot type of player. Uh, but in those those stretches where he was, I would look to me like just a little bit more free to just kind of do whatever is the best play for the team, and not necessarily as a scorer. His playmaking ability really stood out. Uh, his ability to rebound. From the small four position, I I thought that considering the kind of size they had in the front court, I thought he did a really good job. And I I kept thinking, how would he fit into a more positionless lineup, the kind that he would in Boston? And I felt very good about his chances of being an above average rebounder. And, And before the season was paused, you know, Gordon was having a career season in terms of rebounds per game. No surprise there. This season has been the healthiest we've seen Gordon since he became a Celtic. And I don't think by any coincidence that. It's also the best season that he has had statistically since being a Celtic. So Gordon Hayward, to me, when you talk about winning a championship, when you talk about competing for a championship, it's great to have a player with the kind of versatility that Gordon Hayward provides because, as you pointed out, You know, Gordon has the ability to facilitate your offense as that point forward. He's a good enough shooter where you can put him off the ball in the backcourt. He's a natural small forward at 6'8. And depending on your opponent's lineup, you could, in theory, play him a little bit of small ball four if you need to. Uh, And the way the Celtics are so positionless, you know, when teams like to run that high pick and roll and, and maybe switch him out on someone who should be quicker, he's got enough size and length, and I think good enough lateral quickness. To where he's not going to get totally smoked uh, he, he's not going to guard as well as a Marcus Smart for example or Jalen Brown but he's not going to be exactly a walking easy pass either where you can just walk on through with, with little to no resistance so I like what Gordon brings to the table but again for the Celtics going forward you got to get that that cap number down on, on how much he's going to take it because you still got Tatum to pay you're already paying Jalen Brown and, you know, Kimba Walker's already a max player. So Gordon, I I think in theory, you want to get his number down. But definitely you see him as someone, if you're the boss of Celtics, who can help you get to where you want to be because of all the little things that he can do.
1: And it's that cap number, along with the amount of draft picks they have coming into this draft process in the summer, that's really put a, a roster crunch on the team. They've got multiple players tied up. And even if some of those guys were to walk, like Enes Kanter, Vincent Poirier, they can even find a way of moving on for those guys. The cap situation is still atrociously bad in terms of available money. How do you see the Celtics navigating this summer with the three first-round picks plus the second-round pick and trying to add veteran talent around this youngish core to make a run at the finals next year?
0: It's going to be hard. I mean, to me, they're going to have to, I think, benefit the way that they did with Kyrie Irving, and that is find a player uh, who's disgruntled with their situation, who needs to get out, and be in a position where you can offer them a decent player, but not necessarily of the caliber of the player they would would be getting back, and also throw in some picks to go along with it. Uh, Right right now, I think when you look at the Celtics roster, uh, they certainly have the ability to package an Ennis Cantor or a Poirier, uh, you know, and and, and get – you know, something of of decent value in return. But with so many draft picks this year, they they, they have to find a home for those guys or they have to go the draft and stash route, which I'm not a big fan of because I think when you have a draft, unless you're talking about, you know, a a second-round pick or late first-round pick, which two of their picks are, uh, I'm really not all – I don't have a stomach for using a pick that can help us down the road. I'd much rather send that pick to someone else and get a player that can help in the short term. Uh, but, again, the Celtics, it's going to be difficult because, like I, as I just mentioned, you know, two of their three first-round picks are in the bottom ten of the first round. I mean, if, if everything stayed as it is right now, they would have pick numbers I believe, 17, 26, and 30 uh, in a draft. And people aren't itching to necessarily get that 26 and 30 pick and give you something of great value return. Uh, but if you can package one or both of those picks and, you know uh, – a rotation-type player like an Ennis Cantor, for example, uh, and, and get something of, of quality in return, then you, you're going to do that if you're the Celtics. Uh, they, they've got some options, obviously, that they're considering, but I just think it's going to be very difficult for them to get a deal done simply because uh, they realize that they've got some capital there. Uh, they've, they've got some young players on their roster. Uh, and the one thing about Danny Ainge, when he makes a deal – more times than not, he winds up winning that deal. And I think, I do think that there is a little bit of reluctance on the part of some GMs to work with him. Uh, I mean, th- if you think about it, it's, it's kind of like, you know, why would you go up against a guy who more times than not finds a way to win, even when it doesn't feel like he's winning? Uh, your ego could tell you that I'm going to be the different one. I'm going to be the one that's going to beat him and win this deal. But if you start looking at the receipts and you start looking at the deals he's made, more times than not, Danny Ainge and the boss Celtics just get the better of trades.
1: And this, to me, is one of the reasons that they stand pat so regularly at the trade deadline is because GMs, other GMs are so reluctant to come to a deal that would be considered fair among all parties where because, simply because they feel like he must know something we don't or he has an ability to maximize this talent. So we're going to lowball the offer and then nothing, everything stands still. And that's my worry moving into the summer as well. If If... Opposing GMs are going to be asking for something like the 26th to 30th and a Romeo Langford, who's a great building block for the future as a bench scorer behind Jalen Brown. Do you then pull the trigger or are you going to be looking at moving on a, a guy like Enes Canter or Vincent Poirier, who to me is dead cat money based on this year? It, it does become difficult. The other question is, if you've got three first round picks plus a second round pick, and you can you can disregard the second round pick to a certain extent. How do you, if you do end up taking all those three picks, how do you put a team together that's capable of contending with so many rookies and second year guys?
0: You can't. I just, I, I don't think you can. Cause remember they, they use all those, those picks they had last year for guys that are on the roster. Now guys like, you know, as you mentioned, Romeo Langford, you got Williams, Carson Edwards, uh, you know, Taco Fall, who we, we haven't even talked about. It's, They've got – who they didn't draft, but he was, you know, he was their Exhibit 10 guy, and then they, they transferred that over to a two-way contract. So they have a lot of youth on their team right now as it is. And if you take – and think about it. I mean, basically, you know, almost a quarter of their team are guys that are in their first or second year in the NBA. And if you start looking at teams like the Lakers, you look at the, the Clippers, you look at, you know, the Denver Nuggets, teams that are in Milwaukee Bucks, for example those are teams that are in the conversation to win a title. And if you start breaking down their roster, you don't see them have nearly as many rookies that they are leaning on to be contributors. And part of that is because rookies aren't reliable. Uh, I don't care how good you are. I don't care how high you're drafted. The expectations for you in year one are going to be dramatically lower than they will be in two, three, four years down the road. And that's because that first year you're not expected to be as much of an impact player, but someone who gets, Gradually better as the season progresses. But when you are a title contender, you don't have time to wait for this kid to get up to speed. You don't have time for him to develop at his own rate. You need guys who can hit the ground running, and if they have some hiccups along the way, that's fine. But there has to be a steady incremental growth curve with their games. And you are better at finding guys who've been through the NBA grind for a year or two or four who can understand that and, and really implicate what you're trying to do on a night-in-night-out basis then you have for a rookie who is learning not only the life of being an NBA, but also how to navigate and manage getting on the court, processing all the data and information that you have to while still playing a relatively free-thinking game. Because, you know, the one thing that I always worry about with rookies – is what I call paralysis by analysis. And that is where they spend so much time learning all the different things that they need to do that when they get on the floor, they're kind of robotic in, in that because they're thinking everything through as opposed to just doing it. Uh, that muscle memory that the greats, and not even the not so greats have built up over time, rookies don't typically come into the NBA able to do that. It takes them some time to develop that muscle memory. Uh, and, and so to, to, your, to your question, I would be very surprised if we see all three Uh, of those first-round picks in Boston Celtics uniforms. I think the first priority will be to trade some or all of those picks and get a quality, established veteran, someone that can help them from day one in return. And if they can't do that, then I do believe that they will make a point of getting some guys that they can draft and stash for later use. Uh, But I I just don't see the Celtics team adding another three rookies to the roster for this upcoming season.
1: It doesn't make sense to me either for them to go that route, especially if they're looking at contending and keeping guys like Jalen, Jason, Kemba, Gordon all happy because Kemba came to this team to contend. Gordon's, right. Gordon re-signing long-term will hinge on whether he feels they can compete for the championship. Jalen and Jason might be tied up, but they want, you want to make sure that they feel like you're putting the best team around them possible to succeed now So because that memories from now will be what's in their mind come the time their next contracts come up for discussion many years down the line hopefully a few championships down the line so for me it does make sense to try and package those picks either try and move up in the draft to a top five spot which again doesn't exactly solve many of the issues or move out of the draft and try and stagger your draft picks over the next few years or try and chase a veteran player it is quite Fluid in the options they have available. And it all depends on what they're willing to give up alongside those picks to get a decent return. Now, you mentioned Taco 4. I'm quite low on Taco. I've been very vocal about how low I am on Taco. How do you feel about him? Do you feel like he's ready to come into the league and contribute?
0: I think Taco is a situational player. Uh, I think he, he's someone that there are definite scenarios where I can see he can help your team. Uh, The one thing about Taco that I I think has been used as kind of a knock against him is his age. Uh, The fact that, you know, he's a guy that I think a lot of people see has a very limited window for growth, which is crazy to talk about a guy who's 7'5 and no sneakers and talk about growth uh, with him. But with Taco, I look at where he was when I first saw him at Central Florida, and I look at where he was when I saw him at Summer League, and I look at where the last I saw him before the season got stopped. And there is no denying how much better he has gotten as a player. Now, that being said, do I think he's a starter in this league? No. Do I think he's a regular rotation guy? No. Is he an active roster guy? And to me, he's on the bubble uh, for being an active roster guy. And and typically when that is kind of where you're at, uh, there's, there's a reason why. Uh, that you're you're there, uh, and it's because there are just as many questions about your, your potential going forward as there are answers about the promise that you've shown already. Uh, I, I think Taco Fall will be someone that will be in the NBA for a while, but, again, I, I just don't see him being anything more than a situational guy that at the peak of his career I see him being a 10, maybe 15 minutes a night guy, but I think most of his career – in the NBA, is going he's going to be a single-digit, single-digit minutes-per-game player because, again, I think with his height, with his ability to alter shots, I see him being used in a very selective manner. Uh, and that, you know, to me is, is, is where he's at. But to his credit, I will say this. He has made some tremendous strides since he has been a professional basketball player. And if he continues along that trajectory, which I don't think he will, but if he by chance does, then yeah, we can talk about him being you know, a rotation guy, potentially a starter uh, in this league with, a cert- with certain teams. But I think realistically at this point, if Taco can get to the point where he's someone that you feel comfortable with being on your active roster, I think that makes him a, an intriguing prospect and somebody who has a future in this league that, for me, will be a little bit brighter than I think it is right now.
1: And that's the, the work he's put in and the growth he has shown is a testament to the G League and the way they're developing guys working with the parent NBA teams and making sure that they're trained in the way the system works and the improvement is happening because that's one of the main things you want to see from guys in the G League is they're improving towards NBA level. It gives the G League more credibility too. Yeah, With Taco being on a two-way, that, that deal ends in the summer and he becomes an unrestricted free agent again. Do you feel like another team's going to try and swoop in and steal him from under Boston's nose, considering the amount of talent that Boston's going to have? They might need to hand those two ways out. Maybe they want to keep Water as on a two-way again next year. Maybe they like a guy in the draft who falls undrafted, so they take a flyer on him. Do you think Taco's future lies with Boston, or do you see him being a guy that's highly coveted by some lower-end teams, like, I don't know, the Wizards, for example, during the summer?
0: Well, I I know that his preference is to be in Boston. His agent has made it clear to me in our conversations that he wants his guy to stay in Boston. But they also know that uh, things change. They also know that the the NBA landscape might dictate more than necessarily what they want and what the Celtics want as far as what Taco's going to do. You know, as we talked about earlier, you know, he has shown tremendous growth from when he first got to the NBA to where he's at now. And certainly the G League has had a lot to do with that. But the other factor with Taco Fall is just the presence that he has, uh, the fact that he, you know, beyond basketball, he's, he's literally bigger than basketball in many respects from the standpoint of what he can do from an attendance standpoint, what he can do from generating interest in your organization. Now, as much as we talk about adding players to help you win and be more competitive and do those type of things, the NBA is still an entertainment business. And Taco Fall, because of his height, because of his real just, you know, his demeanor, the way he carries himself, he's someone that is going to get your organization a lot of positive attention. And when I look throughout the NBA, there are a lot of teams that could desperately use something like that. And, frankly, there are a lot of teams that could utilize what he does on the floor by probably better than the Celtics in right now. So I think, you know, Todd Fall, there is definitely going to be, you know, an audience for him. Uh, there will be interest. There's no question about it. And the Celtics will be among those teams very interested in his services. But, you know, again, as I said earlier, I still think that big picture tackle on the high side is a 10 to 15 minute per game player. Uh, But I do think that he has the potential to be someone who's talented enough to be on an NBA roster. Uh, But right now I've got him a borderline active roster, inactive roster type guy uh, that – has the potential to get better. But right now, I just don't know if that potential is ever going to get to the point where it becomes practice. And that practice becomes uh, habitual to the point where he is in the rotation, is starting. I just think those things are a little ways down the road.
1: I agree. I've been, as I said earlier, I've been quite vocal about my feelings towards Tucker. I think that my biggest concern for him, and this is more in defense of him than kind of trying to tear him down, is I don't want it to become he's on teams as a mascot of sorts. And I feel like that can be detrimental to his ability as a player, regardless of whether he's a rotational level talent or he's a G League level talent that spends spot minutes in the NBA. It's unfair on him to be being shipped around the country, playing for multiple teams just to get the crowd ship fired up and selling some t-shirts along the way. I feel like that's not the right way to utilize a guy that's by all accounts, one of the nicest people that you can meet.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think that's also a concern for Taco, which is why I think when they are going about looking at potential teams outside of Boston, I think that's going to be uh, a conversation that they will have early on. Uh, I think they will look at that team's roster and, and just, you know, I think the roster itself will say a lot about what they think of Taco. I mean, if it's a team that already has two or three, it already has, let's say, three established centers, uh, and one being someone they drafted maybe in the last couple of years, that's probably not a good fit for Taco because that team isn't necessarily looking for him to enhance their front line. Uh, they're probably looking for him to enhance their bottom line, their financial bottom line. Uh, and, and certainly in Boston, it's, it's been a little bit of an awkward song and dance for Brad Stevens, who really likes Taco as a person, but really likes his growth as a player. And, you know, hearing the chants, we want Taco, we want Taco, you know, when they're up by like nine points in the second quarter, you know, that that's just not uh, conducive to what he's trying to do as a head coach and certainly not what Taco wants as a player. You know, Taco and I, we, we, during All-Star Weekend, he was in Chicago and him and I had a chance to, you know, sit down, spend a lot of time with each other and, and just kind of get to know each other a little bit better. And, you know, the one thing that came through crystal clear to me was how this kid's desire is to be an accepted NBA player he's not looking for, he doesn't while he loves people he's not 100% comfortable with so many people viewing him as this kind of victory cigar human victory cigar someone that plays when the game is out of reach you know he, he had a couple of games you know near the end of the season where he actually got in before the fourth quarter and it threw a lot of people off and you know he, he made some mistakes but he did some good things too he looked like a rookie playing uh Early on in his career, and if you're the Celtics, that's okay because you want him to really not think about him on him being on the floor as being we're just giving you minutes because the fans want you. We actually want you to go out there and perform and help us win. And I think Taco is has a better feel for that now than he did early on. Uh, and I think because of that, uh, it's going to be very difficult for teams to I think convince him to go elsewhere unless it becomes just a money situation. Like if he gets a huge multi-million dollar offer and all the money's guaranteed and the Celtics offer is significantly less than that, then it makes sense for him to go on. But I I think if if everyone had their say and had their way, Taco Fall would be back with the Boston Celtics next season.
1: And that's what you want, really. You want him to be on a team that values him as a player rather than just a financial commodity that is, as you really eloquently put it, a victory cigar, because that's how he was viewed at very large portions of the season taco's on the floor so we know this game's won and that's unfair to him the final question i've got while we're on the terms of rookies and to pretty much wrap up the contract um contract (laughs) to wrap up the podcast is grant williams what's your experience been like with him the most talkative most happy fun guy that seems to exist on the entire planet how many interactions have you had with him and how long does it take you to get a word in
0: you know, he's he's not he's not at well. let let me let me back up. Uh, he's very loquacious, very talkative young man. Uh, when I've talked with him, we really haven't had an issue with with him talking. I mean, he's very intelligent and he's and he's thoughtful in what he says. Uh, to me, he he's ideally what you want in a rookie. Uh, to me, the the one thing that I always worried about with him was whether because he talks so much, because he talks so often, whether or not his older teammates would tune him out. And just you know, not really give him the kind of the, the respect that you would want uh, all your teammates that, to get from you and, and you to give them. Uh, he's been the guys have warmed to him quicker than I thought. Now they all will tell you he talks all the time. Uh, but the one thing that I have learned from his teammates is that more times than not, when he's talking during games, he's giving you something that you need. He's telling you something whether it's you know, telling you to look out for, you know, a screen that's coming your way or whether he's communicating a set, particular set that they need to either get into or they need to defend against. Uh, he's giving you valuable, important, vital information when he's, when he's flapping his gums. And that's okay if you're the Boston Celtics because, you know, they have a more wide open uh, type of, I think, back and forth interaction among themselves than a lot of teams. And that affords a guy like Grant Williams, who's only a rookie, to actually speak up and know that his voice is being heard as opposed to it just being in one ear and out the other. So, uh, again, I, I think I think he gets it. Uh, I, I think he understands that in order for him to help this team, he has to be himself. And that means being loud, being vocal, being interactive, and just really just kind of keeping things relatively lighthearted, but at the same time making sure when you get out there that you're competing and you're giving your teammates the best chance to compete at their best. Uh, Grant, he's been a breath of fresh air, frankly, among the rookies uh, that the Celtics have brought in because of what he can do from an intellectual standpoint as well as what he can do from a simple running up and down, rebounding, passing, that type of uh, perspective as well.
1: And long-term, for me personally, he's projecting as his biggest trait of being a high-level glue guy, a guy that... In the locker room, he's keeping everybody smiling. Sort of what Canter does, but will be at a much higher level long-term throughout his career. And that is a very, very valuable trait, coupled with his defensive intellect, as you've pointed out, and his growth on offense, which will naturally occur over the years as he gets used to the NBA and the game starts to slow down for him. Out of all the rookies that Boston have drafted over the last, say, two years, I feel like Grant's going to have one of the longest careers in the league. Do you, yeah. I, do you see it that way, too?
0: Yeah, I,
1: I do. Uh, you know, to the points that you made, so much of
0: what he does now, I think from a strength standpoint, lies between his ears. And that, as we all know, the, the, the mind has a tendency to last longer than the body in terms of making an impact as an NBA player. And I think Grant Williams, he's, he's not going to be an exception to that. So, yeah, I do think he's a guy that can have a long uh, NBA career, provided that he stays healthy and provided that he finds himself in situations where what he does as a player is appreciated. You know, there, there are a lot of teams that, you know, they want their players to do certain things specifically. And some of those things don't necessarily translate well to the NBA as well as they did maybe in college. But his ability to defend, rebound, he's good at passing out of the double team, good at passing out of the block as well as from the elbow. Uh, There's a lot of things you like about his game and a a lot of those things have more to do with what he can process from an intellectual standpoint than necessarily what he does athletically speaking. So I do think that because he's a smart player, high IQ player uh, who is committed to steadily getting better and and figuring out what he needs to do in order to help the team win, uh, Grant's not going anywhere anytime soon in the NBA.
1: Um, I'm all for it. I really like Grant Williams. I feel like if you can ever catch him on a post-game show, then it's, Regardless of if you win or lose, it's a way of kind of leveling yourself out after that emo- emotional roller coaster. Because he's always going to give you something funny, and he's always going to give you something insightful. And as his career progresses, he'll get more chances to be shown on post game shows, and more interviews will come his way. What's it like for you? Do you get to do some of these post game interviews with these guys?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I do some of them. You know, I've and, and you know, they're, they're all enjoyable. Um, you know, it's because usually when we do them, I mean, well. Yeah, when we do them, it means the Celtics won, and that's that's always good for the players, always good for us. Uh, you know, I, I you know I've done some you know where you know Gordon Hayward has had a big game, and next thing you know, you know I'm you know dodging raindrops from the cups of water that they're, they're throwing on him. Uh, so yeah, I mean it's it's enjoyable. Um, it, it is, but it, I I like the fact that there's certain players who. Um, they give themselves that necessary moment that necessary moment to really kind of collect their thoughts before they do them. Uh, it's, it's never a good idea when players don't give a little bit of thought to what just happened before they start talking about what just happened. Uh, sometimes the Warriors don't come out quite uh, how they're supposed to, but more times than not, though, uh, the Celtics players, they've been really good about just being thoughtful about the post-game interview process and, and just kind of gathering their thoughts before you know they, they start talking about the game.
1: I'm quite jealous that you're in a, you get to do that, to be quite honest. Do you ever get, have to speak to these guys after a tough loss? How do you, and if you do, how do you kind of navigate the difference in tone of voice and the type of questions that you're putting forward to these guys? Because obviously tensions are high, emotions are a bit lower or a bit higher than they would be following a win.
0: Well, by the time we get into the locker room to talk to guys after games, so they've, they've had a good 10, 15 minutes to kind of cool off get their thoughts together, take a look at the stat sheets, see what their numbers are, see what the team's numbers are, and just kind of really develop in their own head kind of the talking points that they want to convey to us or, frankly, uh, get a sense of what type of questions that they, you know, will likely get from us. I mean, if Kimball Walker has seven turnovers, uh, which is highly unusual for him, uh, he'll have some time to look at the stat see the turnovers, and, and kind of formulate in his head how he's going to address that question because that, that's one that certainly we would be asking. Uh, but it's really not that hard because the one thing I, I try to be with players is, you know, you try to be balanced. I mean, you know, this, this game is hard. Uh, being an NBA player is hard. Going out there night in and night out. Three games and four nights, five and seven, seven and ten, all that type of stuff. It wears on you. And and, and having covered the NBA for a long time, I totally get that. Um, but when it comes to asking them questions, to me, I, I think you have to keep it. To me, it's, it's like uh, it's like playing golf. Um, as long as you keep the ball in a fair way, you have a chance to be – you have a chance for a good score. Uh, if you're just tapping the ball and it just moves a few feet or if you're whacking it into the woods and you got to, you know, you, you obviously you're not on a fairway, it's harder to be, be great. It's harder to be successful. But as long as you keep the ball going forward on the fairway, you're going to be okay.
1: I like that analogy. That's a really good way of looking at it. Keep the questions fair and even and slowly progress through the interview. That pretty much wraps us up for today. I really want to thank you for coming on. I'm sure everybody listening is going to enjoy it. Hopefully we can do this again once basketball's resumed and there's some good stories coming out that maybe you can give us some insight to. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know how to find me. And guys, if you're listening, make sure you go check out Celtics Talk with Aisha Rad. You said tomorrow, right? Tomorrow or Wednesday? It uh, should
0: be out later tonight or early on Tuesday morning sometime. But yeah, it'll be out the latest... Uh, the latest... Uh, update on the podcast it'll be with casey johnson of nbc sports chicago and we'll be talking about the last dance as well as celtics leadership under danny and we'll get into just the you know the not the almost could have but should have been done deal with jimmy butler and just some of the behind the scenes uh factors that contributed to that deal falling apart
1: so by the time this is released guys it would have been out yesterday so make sure you go onto Apple, Spotify and look for yesterday's episode of Celtics Talk. I'm sure it's a not miss. I'll be listening and we'll catch you again on Friday when we resume our draft series. Thank you for everyone listening. Again, please make sure to leave a nice written review. Nice being the operative word and uh, subscribe if it's your first time listening. Catch you soon.